Well, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and uh, with me as usual is Eric Whitehead, our engineer, sound man, etc., and the great deputy editor of Grant's Evelyn And we also have uh, Seth Wiseman, who is the uh, founder of Urban Standard Capital, who in a few moments is going to tell us all about uh, real estate in the city of New York. But, uh, you know, we awaken, we New Yorkers, and I dare say people throughout this country awaken to a sense of... Uh, anti-climax and uh, not a little confusion. And Evan, as he so often does, kind of capsulized the uh, capsulated, miniaturized uh, the sentiment. And uh, he sent around a message uh, to the staff, and the message in its entirety was, quote, nobody knows nothing, which reminded me of a line of uh, accomplished screenwriter. William Goldman was a guy who wrote the screenplays for all the president's men and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, et cetera, et cetera. I think he died in 2018. Anyway, um, William Goldman uttered this immortal Hollywood line, quote, nobody knows anything, which was apropos of uh, the predictive capacity of Hollywood executives to tell a flop from a hit. And nobody knew nothing with respect to their own business of predicting the success of theatrical project, which I think is uh, something to tell us about risk and investments as well. Evan, when you typed the, uh, the better, I think William Goldman would be, have been better advised to have said, nobody knows nothing, which I think is more emphatic. But what were you thinking exactly when you wrote that improvement on the William Goldman line? I was thinking how sure the market, how sure pollsters were, and how sure very complicated models by the like of Nate Silver, New York Times, and everything else, exactly how the election would go down to the margin. And then I remember watching it last night and seeing it just get <laughs> disappointed time and time again which just goes to show you the world is more perverse than our models anticipate. Yeah. I think George, I've, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking for a quotation I know came from George Orwell. And he said, in effect, uh, the only time you're right, he said, is when your forecast coincides with your secret or not so secret hope. So uh, anyway, so much for the fine art of prediction, which brings us, however, to the much more tangible world of bricks, mortar, real estate in the market of the city of New York. And, and Seth Wiseman has made this his uh, his investment specialty. Seth, this reminds me of a line of um, of I one of the great investors who was uh, asked, uh, you know, uh, where is the outlook good? People would ask this guy, where is the outlook good? And he'd say, yeah, that's, that's the wrong question. You must ask, where is the outlook terrible? By which, of course, he meant that uh, presumably with a known terrible outlook, there would be bargains. So Seth Wiseman, tell us, are bargains surfacing in real estate in New York City? Okay. Well, uh, I can do my best to help answer that question. Um, we're very much in a, a moving marketplace where at the moment there is uh, a lot of price discovery as buyers and sellers fill, figure out where the bid is. And there's a lot of new information feeding the market every day, whether it's related to the reopening in New York and COVID um, or the election or other variables. But we have been, for the last couple of months, seeing more opportunities and distress come to head. But it's been delayed, and it still is not a flood of opportunity. And some of that is driven by two factors related to the governor's actions on evictions and the governor's actions on foreclosures. So at the moment, the foreclosure process is halted. Um, so banks are not really able to sort of follow through on that process and the courts are clogged. Um, and as a result, what you're seeing is, you know, everybody is sort of trying to force to work together, which is, I think, a good thing, borrowers and lenders. Um, and then similarly at the property level, 
evictions halted, um, you know, owners and and uh, and their tenants are trying to work together to sort of land the plane as smoothly. But as those restrictions lift and people get a better sense of the marketplace, they're making the decisions of buy and sell and take you know, some loss or not and move on and reinvest in distress. In the last couple of months, we've started to see banks come to the market with more reasonable expectations on the price of their their note sales um, and, and, and sellers as well. Uh, Seth, one thing that's complicated this factor is, as part of the CARES Act, banks can put loans in moratorium and essentially not treat them as uh, non-performing loans. And in New York, I know that some of the banks like Signature put large portions of their uh, commercial real estate portfolios in CARES Act deferrals. How is this kind of affecting the cadence of distress coming to market? Because if a loan is in deferral and you don't have to make principal and interest payments, I assume you're not going to default. Correct. That's exactly the, the right point. And that has bought people time. But Lenders like a signature bank recognize it's just bought them time and that time will come to an end. And so they have to make the decision, you know, looking at their overall portfolio, what do they want to offload and at what price? Because, you know, they sort of pretending that there's not an issue there as it relates to the regulators. And at the moment, they're not because they've been granted that exemption. Um, That's going to come to an end. And I can't tell you, does that happen first quarter of next year, second quarter of next year, but it's going to happen. And so what we've seen is, you know, a willingness from banks like Signature to entertain discounts on their notes that certainly in the second and third quarters of, of, of 2020, they weren't willing to entertain, but, but they have to plan for the future and they want to put themselves in a position where they can, you know, continue to actively lend at new price points and uh, with new rates and, and on a healthier product. So, you know, yes, it's bought time for everybody, but people are looking over the horizon and trying to figure out their plans today. So, what, so what kind of what what kind of total return might you be looking at today in I don't know, say a, a, a middle kind of grade residential, uh, you know, an apartment building in uh, in the borough of Manhattan, uh, neither glitzy nor rundown. What kind of cap rate, what kind of uh, return on capital after making allowances for reasonable uh, depreciation and maintenance expense? If you put this in the terms that uh, an equity or a bond investor might understand, what is the opportunity now, given the complexities? Before I speak about cap rate, that cap rate and price is is tied as as well to net operating income, right? And and the operating cash over property. What is a big change at the moment is where are rents, right? Rents depend on your location. And even within Manhattan, it's different, right? Manhattan south of 96th Street is a different market than north of 96th Street. And one thing that we have seen is that rents are down 10 to 15%. In some cases, we've seen bigger discounts, particularly for larger apartments, you know, roommate share apartments, three bedroom, four bedroom units, or uber luxury apartments. So, uh, which there's a lot of, and 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 that's driven by the fact that most businesses are not requiring their employees to come back to work at the moment. Right. Right. So whether you know, it sort of goes in two directions. If you're a young professional and you're living with two or three other people, and you can work remotely. And you were previously part of the reason you were paying the freight of living in New York is you were paying for the cultural and social amenities, right? The ability to go out to bars and restaurants and cultural events. If you can't do that and you don't need to go to work physically, then why would you pay the freight to live in the city? And, And the answer for most people is you wouldn't and you would find other places to go. 
which a lot of people have done. So you have that dynamic. And then you have the luxury rental market, which are people, you know, if you're spending more than five, six, seven thousand a month on rent, which, you know, for most people in America might be a horrifying thought, but it's pretty common in Manhattan, you typically have options. So you might have rented a house in Long Island or New Jersey or Connecticut or upstate New York because you're in an income bracket that gives you flexibility. You're also likely in an industry that is more conducive to you know, working remotely and, and having, you know, endless Zoom and, and uh, Google right. Teams. Okay. Um, so those two factors are putting a lot of downward pressure on rent. And I think, you know, in terms of the pricing and cap rate, a lot of that depends, you know, where buyers see rents going forward, right? Do they think this is a six to 12 month blip and then people return to their offices and rents recover to pre-COVID levels or 90% of pre-COVID levels? Or are these 20, 25% reductions here to stay? And, you know, that will drive cap rate, right? And I think generally on mid-tier product, you're looking at cap rates in Manhattan in the five to five and a half percent range. When you go to northern Manhattan and you go to parts of Brooklyn and Queens, that creeps up to around six. But you have to be really careful about what your expectations are regarding yeah. rent levels. And, you know, when you combine an expansion of cap rate from, say, four, four and a half percent below, you know, previously pre-COVID to five to five and a half or six percent today, just mathematically, that alone is a 25 to 35 percent delta in value because of the way the multiple effect. You layer on top of that a decline in your rents and you might be looking at a value that is 40 percent below where these assets might have traded a couple of years ago. That's a very hard pill to, to, to swallow for a lot of owners, you know, and the trades we are seeing happen are happening from long-term owners. So we've bought several assets in the last couple of months and the profile of the seller has persisted. People who have owned the buildings for 30, 50 years, who recognize that they're not gonna get the peak pricing of 2016, but they also recognize that they've owned these assets for 30 to 50 years. They're, they've still done very well. And, and frankly, many of them don't have either the, the time or the stomach for to go through another cycle. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and because they've owned the assets so long, they have a basis that gives them flexibility in terms of pricing. But you know that's a dynamic that has to exist. If you bought something in 2016 or 2017, you took a big hit in 2018, if there were rent regulated units with the rent law changes, and then you took a bigger hit with COVID. So you may not have any equity left in the property at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Seth, you mentioned the uh, another cycle and some people not having the stomach to suffer one, but these cycles can and do last. I mean, my goodness, the uh, 80s seem to go on for about uh, 35 years, just that one decade. And, <laughs> yeah. and how does one uh, you know, time this, uh, bearing in mind the um, William Goldman admonition or the Evan Lorenz <laughs> admonition about uh, prescience, a little clairvoyance? Something is down 40 percent, and yet you see that the mayor of the city of New York actually has a nickname called Blah. Which seems to be well earned, <laughs> and you you see that uh, the street amenities are not what they might be. You are looking over your shoulder at the possibility of another cycle in in crime and and urban decay. And so, do you proceed uh, down forty percent as to kind of a commanding uh, valuation point, or are you waiting for the cycle to play out and perhaps seeing still greater bargains? It's 
very situation specific. I, I will tell you as an investor, and I, I manage both equity and debt funds focused on the New York tri-state market. You know, on the equity side of the hundred investors, say I speak with regularly, seventy percent don't want to talk about investing in New York until we get through the election and through the winter reopening. The other thirty percent are very eager to be contrarian and step in. And to your question of, you know, is this the moment? Do you wait? That's a very situation specific, you know, uh, answer. And 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 I have family offices who feel that now's the time. They recognize that they can buy things at a steep discount to the cost of replacement, meaning the cost to, to buy the land rebuild today. And they like that as a foundation for their investment thesis. And the reason there is that you know, if you're buying something for a thousand dollars a square foot that costs fifteen hundred dollars a foot to replicate, well, you know that new supply can't come on and be competitive with you. Um, so it's a nice sort of risk mitigant. But you know, you might not be catching it at the bottom. But a lot of, at least for the family offices and foundations I deal with, that might have a five and ten and even fifteen year outlook. They are not um, so focused on catching the absolute bottom. Um, they recognize an attractive entry point. Uh, maybe it's driven by being below replacement cost, or we sensitize rents and we sensitize operating income and, and key variables for cash flow. And if we feel like you know we have the ability to weather a storm um, and still come out okay, I mean we study probabilities of different outcomes. Um, and if when if those probabilities overwhelmingly lead to a favorable investment result, that can offer a, a you know a compelling investment thesis. But you know, but again, that's thirty percent of the conversations I'm having, and the other seventy percent at the moment are uh, you know are, are on hold. Uh, Seth, at the start of this, you said that banks are beginning to offer notes and properties at more reasonable prices after the third quarter. How reasonable is reasonable, and have they come down to a level that's market clearing yet? Uh, they have not come down to a level that's market clearing. Uh, part of that is we're only in the last quarter starting to see the impact on rents because you know you, you couldn't even show apartments until I think the end of June, and you know what happened with schools didn't play out until September, and with companies reopening, you know, a lot of leases in New York roll over the summer anyway. So pricing, it sort of has continued to chase downward as new information has come out. And people have said, well, wait a minute, I have to re-underwrite the value of these buildings, not at the 2018 and 2019 rent rolls, but at some discount to those rent rolls. And, you know, and so previously, if you assume rents would be the same or stay within five percent of where they were a year ago, well, then you could sort of come to a number and say, all right, well, Signature Bank, I can pay you 80 cents on the dollar based on that. Now you have new information coming into the fall. We're still on lockdown. We're still only at 25% of indoor dining. Most big companies are still not requiring their companies, their, their employees rather to come back. And so rents are not down five to 10%. They're down as, as you know, 15 to 20%. And now that 80 cent on the dollar bid is 70 cents on the dollar. And, and the signature bank has to make that decision of, you know, oh, do they think this is the right entry point, you know, or, or exit point, I guess, in their case. Um, and so it's a constantly evolving market. But I think what we're starting to see is people are more realistic about about where the world is um, and how long we're going to be there. And I would say on the it, it's been interesting on the financing side of our business. Basically, every developer and borrower who started a project in 2016, 2017, and we make loans on value add properties. So they're 
you know, clients who are buying properties, making some improvements, and in theory, creating value as they do so. All those clients are really focused now not on their original business plan, which you know may have had a two times equity multiple or 1.7, you know, two times equity multiple. They're trying to get their money back, right? I, I, I joke in my office that the new uh, 2.0 equity multiple, uh, that some people are saying if I can get 50 cents of every dollar I invested and move on and maybe redeploy that money um, into a down market, that's what people are doing. So, um, uh, hey, Seth, tell us, uh, you know, SL Green is a public equity, lots of liquidity, and um, its stock is down a lot. So how do you, sh- how do you compare uh, opportunities in brick and mortar, inherently illiquid, uh, with the value on offer from SL Green? So certainly there's a liquidity premium, right, that you have to factor in. Uh, you know, but if you're comparing, like, private office to public office, which is what uh, Empire State Realty Trust or... SL Green or even Bornado to a certain extent, although they seem to have more retail as well. You know, you obviously, if you're investing in the illiquid private markets, you're going to need some premium to, um, you know, to account for the illiquidity. But there are opportunities in, in both spaces. The, the challenge there, again, is a rent challenge. The amount of sublease space on the market, the unknowns of, regarding absorption and pricing, you know, make this sort of floor of value hard to determine. In addition to the many unknowns that we have today, including who will be president and what the composition of Congress will be next year, we may actually have higher taxes next year. If we do get an increase in taxes, what does that do to the real estate market in uh, New York and into property transaction values? Sure. So certainly the the devil is in the details. I I don't think personally that the Trump administration has been good for New York real estate and New York generally for a couple of reasons. Part of it is the tax reforms that were passed were very negative for New Yorkers, uh, specifically the inability to deduct New York state taxes against your federal income tax bill. Um, New York state taxes, I don't know if it's the highest or it's the second highest in the nation, but they're quite high. It's the highest in the world. It's the highest in the world. Is it? Is it? I thought I thought California maybe was included. <laughs> no, that was just an emotional outbreak. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know, I know that. I know that's how it feels. Uh, but I think technically we might be number two. But you know, so that was you know that was a big hit, right? The inability, if you were a suburban homeowner, to deduct your real estate taxes against your your income taxes. That was a big hit. That was capped at 10,000. You go out to Long Island in in Westchester, most of the homes have real estate tax bills in in excess of $10,000. Further, it's a market where, you know, the reduction in the interest rate, uh, you know, cap from a million to 750, that was a negative. So those things have all been negatives uh, for New York uh, from the Trump administration. Additionally, there are sort of political elements. You know, Trump is embodies New York City real estate. That's been his whole, you know, sort of spiel for his career and The Apprentice and everything. The far left in New York has been, you know, completely encouraged and sort of baited by his presence. And so I think the animus that the far left in New York feels is being you know, lashed out. And, and unfortunately, New Yorkers and New York City residents in particular are feeling the consequences of what feel like politically motivated, you know, rules and, and, and regulatory constraints that are having the effect of discouraging investment and economic growth. I mean, it's interesting to me, not only the Amazon debacle as an example, but you just had Industry City in Sunset Park, where the council member who 
killed a project with 20,000 jobs and 100 million in tax revenue, which was a disaster for Brooklyn and you know, really should, should not have been squashed. He just announced that he's running for mayor, right? So all of a sudden, what should be billed as disqualifications, right? That's not something to, you know, that one should be trumpeting. He thinks is a qualification, and, and he may be right. Um, it, the guy's was, a shoe in The guy's yeah. a shoe in This is, this it, is what it, New York City stands for. Well, un, un, and unfortunately, and I think, you know, there's an element of what, what's going on with the election is people are seeing what's happening in Democrat-controlled markets, you know, whether it's New York City or Chicago or Portland or L.A. or San Francisco, the images are pretty, pretty tough to digest. And I think people get spooked then when they see what's happening here uh, and in those cities. So, you know, all this to say, you know, a lot of this stuff is coming out of, you know, a really strong feeling of anger and resentment toward Trump. I mean, he, you know, he's the embodiment of, of New York City real estate. And so I think people are, you know, it's an opportunity to strike back. And instead of having you know, pragmatic, progressive policies that, you know, really encourage growth. Um, you're ending up with, you know, stuff that is just driven by by, by right. this animus for the far left. So I, I think Biden, Biden win, frankly, lowers the temperature and puts somebody who's a more moderate, you know, voice in place. And along those lines, I think Biden will negotiate a significant stimulus for New York. You know, Trump has punished, you know, not only New York, but other blue states and prevented much needed federal aid to support our small and mid-sized businesses and in our most vulnerable population. I think Trump, you know, if he's out, Biden will be able to deliver that aid to to the city and to New York, hey, which, Seth, uh, Seth, which is good. Seth, sounds as if you are, um, at least uh, by the sound of your voice and by the content of your remarks, I would guess that you are a member of the value-seeking investment tribe, as opposed to, say, the momentum or the uh, high-tech. Not just to surmise, I'm probably wrong about this, but if um, if value is part of the real estate proposition in New York investment proposition, let me ask you this. Um, value investing is absolutely out. I mean, it is what's a level below a footnote in a book. I guess it would be part of the <laughs> appendix. It didn't make it into publication. But value investing is lagging. It uh, is given up for dead. So why should the seemingly commonsensical um, search for a discount and a margin of safety in New York City fare any better as an investment return than has a similar search in public equities and uh, and uh, yeah so yeah public equities the stock market does not favor value seeking it seems why should the real estate market favor value seeking so I you know, I think one thing to differentiate I mean value seeking is you know as you said it's often driven by basis and it's driven by a margin of safety that provides some optionality the other thing that to add to that that may not be as readily accessible in, in the securities markets you know for your average retail investor is if you're a value-focused investor in New York, and, and you're right, we are one. It's not just the the cost basis being below replacement costs and having those that optionality and different path to profitability. You, know, it's also about the concrete steps you take at the property level to grow the value, right? And that could be everything from renovating apartments to achieve premium rents or changing property level, you know, like physical construction items, right? So to drive down your costs. So it could be converting from a old oil boiler to a gas boiler or insulating your roof cavity or changing your window system, stuff that you can sort of block and tackle and 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 reduce your expenses and, and enhance your, your net operating income. So there's that element of the value add philosophy 
that exists in the in, you know in the real estate business, not just in New York, but it but but generally that is a little bit different than the sort of value focused you know, finding yeah. value focused companies. Um, of course, you could find management teams that are doing that, et cetera, but it's a little less tangible, a little less con- concrete than it is yeah. uh, you know for real estate. Well, Seth Wiseman has been our guest. He is the founder of Urban Standard Capital and serves as managing partner as well of Wiseman Equities and City Shares, that one word, City Shares. And um, he is also the owner of um, an aging but indomitable dog who is, uh, we wish, her is it, Seth? Her, yeah. Yeah, wish her the best and wish you the best. And thank you for joining us today on Current Yield. It has been a pleasure indeed. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll talk soon. And uh, Evan and Eric, um, I don't know, it's, uh, the day's young. Let's do something constructive with Grant's interest rate observer, shall we? There we go. Yes. All right. Sounds good. Thank, thank you again. Okay. No, thank you. Of course. Thank you. Guys. Fellas. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening. 